guys, so thanks for tuning back in to Turnout, the podcast for horsemen by horsemen. Um, today, we're going to be shifting away from eventing and more towards thoroughbreds. So obviously, this coming weekend is the Kentucky Derby. And with that, we have brought you a Kentucky Derby-centric episode. So we are talking to two people. One, many of you will recognize her name, Miss Rosie Napravnik, retired jockey extraordinaire. And she's going to kind of tell us about her entire experience through her, her upbringing as a jockey and what it felt like to win the Kentucky Oaks, which just seems unreal. But we're then going to shift and look towards the future and talk to breeder, owner, pinhooker, bloodstock agent, Carrie Brogdon, um, and just ask her about where she sees the industry going and some of the changes that are being made and need to be made. So uh, just to kind of break it down, though, both John and I love thoroughbreds. So, John, can you kind of just touch briefly on what brought you into this industry? My God, I was not prepared for that question. Yeah, deal. I was born into it, uh, <laughs> like like thoroughbred. I was born into it. Um, we have just a small-time family operation, um, breeding, selling horses. My dad trained for a little while, so it's in my blood. And, you know, once it's in your blood, it's, there's just no getting out of it. No matter how ridiculous, no matter how many heartbreaks, um, you know, once you're in it, you're in it. Yeah. So... Uh, here I am talking about it on a radio show. <laughs> I think we're both really excited about this episode because not only is it Kentucky Derby, but this this industry is really at a pivotal moment in time. And I think that there's a lot of conversation happening. There's a lot of changes happening. We hope to touch on a few of those changes with uh, the guests that we have today. But I'm sure that moving forward with the next few episodes, we'll be talking more about them. So I really enjoyed this talk with Rosie, uh, Rosie Napravnik, which... People talk about authenticity. For one thing, Carly comes in here every day, like covered in manure and yeah, placenta and many other. I don't even want to know what else. Uh, but if that's not authentic, I mean. I, Hashtag repro goals. Exactly. So not only does she come in covered in barn, but we interviewed Rosie in a, basically in a horse stall at the horse park. <laughs> So we are on location. So I apologize if any of the uh, if, if there's background noise, but it's it's like it's barn noise. So it's yeah. it's 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 very soothing actually. Like just like shove some hay on your lap and yeah. feel like you're back at home. But anyway, Rosie's just a certified badass. Yeah. So I was really happy we got to talk to her, um, and I, I definitely think you all will enjoy the interview. Yeah, and and you guys, uh, just keep on listening. We now are available on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. So get those ponies turned out and tune in. I'm so excited about this next interview with Rosie Napravnik. I have to admit that when I forced her to accept my friendship as we hacked from stadium to the trailers, I fangirled the entire way. She is the highest earning female jockey with $71 million in purses earned. Holy crap. Um, She has jockeyed to wins in such ridiculous races as the Kentucky Oaks on Believe You Can, the Breeders' Cup Distaff on Untappable, and the Breeders' Cup Juvenile on Shanghai Bobby. And I'm like slightly obsessed with Shanghai Bobby because he's just so ridiculously good looking. Um, Interestingly, though, Rosie hung up her silks in the end of 2014 for family, but still stays really heavily involved in her husband Joe Sharp's training endeavors. And now in 2019, she is an avid eventer, a mom of two, and quite the passionate advocate for repurposing the thoroughbred. So, welcome 
I'm really excited to talk to you, not only from the derby angle, but the retraining angle, the female angle, everything. So hopefully we'll touch base on everything. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be on and uh, very excited to talk about all of those amazing things. <laughs> all of the things. <laughs> so just to begin, because obviously this is our quote unquote Kentucky Derby episode that includes the Kentucky Oaks, which is a race you won. I still remember watching it. I actually was in the breeding shed at Airdrie when you won really so wow. we had it playing and i can only tell you how ridiculously excited the entire crew of that farm was when you won and i just remember thinking like what a badass <laughs> like she's my age she's my size and for some reason she can actually lose the 20 pounds and do it <laughs> and i'm sitting over here with a bud light in my hand <laughs> you know riding my appaloosa pony but can you describe just what that was like like the greatest stage um, so my Kentucky Oaks experiences actually go back to the year before I won it. Um, in 2011, I rode, uh, I rode a filly called St. John's River in the Kentucky Oaks, who's owned by Dee Dee McGeehee. And I, I think we basically fell on our face coming out of the gate and I just had no choice to just go last and go to the rail and save ground and from there I just weaved my way through like it was in a movie um <laughs> I like weaved this is my way through I was number style. 13 or something on the outside completely broke on our face went to last weaved through came up and got beat like a half a length by Plum Pretty and that was when I was like I am going I'm to win this. one of these races it's also, going it's to pretty. happen for me <laughs> um and so the following year, um, you know, Believe You Can had won all the prep races at, at the fairgrounds. She was an extraordinary filly. And um, I was studying the program, like handicapping the race, and she was like going off at like 13 to 1 or something like that. And I was like, what am I missing? I feel like I'm on the You're winner. Like, if only I could legally I, bet on this filly. <laughs> no, I was like, why is she not taking more money? Like, I feel like I am stone cold winner. And I hate to sound, like, super cocky, but in the post parade, yeah. I'm, like, you know, rehearsing my speech for the winter <laughs> circle. That's awesome. But I was just – she had me in that – I mean, you know, as a competitor, like, when you get into that ultra confidence and yeah. you're just, like, I'm gonna yeah. freaking nail this. Which almost feels so much better. Like, at least for me, there is something to say about, like, don't be cocky. But at the same time, we know horses feed off of nerves. So if you go in with that stone cold, like, yeah. I'm just going to get this and done – in a situation like racing, that's huge. Everything about that race was just like textbook. This is gonna happen, and I got the perfect position. Um, and then I like loomed up outside of Johnny Velasquez, and I'm like, I'm totally gonna beat you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just, I mean, I knew that I was on the best horse all the way down the lane. It was, awesome. it was super exciting because we were head and head for a while. But I could tell that I had more horse than he did, and. It was just like, yes, I knew it. I knew I was going to win one of these races. And so it was such an awesome experience. I mean, absolutely sort of life-changing in the fact that, you know, it was validating for me of like, yes, yeah. you're here. You deserve to be here. And this is just a start yeah. of better things to come. And what do you think, like, obviously you're a female. There are not that many female jockeys we're obviously getting. I was actually thinking as I was writing your little bio today that you were kind of part of this 
momentum that I witnessed happen. I started in the industry in 2008, and in that time, there was Zenyatta and Rachel Alexandra and Songbird, and then in this weird twist, we had you. And so, like, all of a sudden, there was, like, this girl power movement. And do you think that that drove you, impacted you? Like, what, what a, was that even, like, a factor in your mind? Or was it like, no, I just want to be a good jockey? No, um, I mean, no. I, I, I think it really having to do with the way that I was brought up. Um, I was brought up with an older brother who was my best friend who was two, old, two years older than me. And all I wanted to do was, like, be my big brother. Yeah. Um, or, and he was so nice to, like, let me hang out with him all the time. Um, but so I grew up with that, like, co-ed, like, I'm just one of the guys. And then, you know, I just went through life for a long time thinking there wasn't that much of a difference between men and women, which I then learned was very much untrue. Um, but, uh, you know, I just kind of was raised with that, like, what do you want to do? Okay, go get it. Yep. And so it wasn't ever, like... Even, you know, when I rode my first race and uh, Dickie Small is who I came up under and he went to enter me and is like, okay, what name are we going to use? I'm like, really? Like, this is... We're still at National Velvet Right. I'm like, like, really? Isn't this over... You know, I obviously (laughs) didn't say anything because he would know way better (laughs) than I do. do. And so we used my initials and I like thought that was like totally like antiquated and, and way overkill. I'm like, okay, it's like, you know, 2005, like, let's get over it, you know? But it absolutely did end up serving its purpose and I really realized it years later and then um so wait what were your initials when you entered ar super catchy <laughs> so it was just ar and a pravna it was ar and a pravna it was super catchy um but yeah and and but it, it 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 did end up serving its purpose and and i do believe that you know in the getting started stages yeah. That is when it is important. Which is sad, though, at the same time, because, like, I, I you know, I it say is, national but, but velvet, but I'm is, having but this, like, not, montage of you, like, cutting your hair. It's not necessarily people being so sexist. It's yeah. just the fact that there are not a lot no. of female jockeys to begin with. No, and there the, still are. The like, we have Sophie Doyle and a couple of yeah, others, The percentage still not. of female jockeys is so low that you don't see you know so many of them rising to the top because there's just not a lot of them i mean there's a lot of really bad guy jockeys yeah you know but so for the getting started stages i would say that issue was definitely a thing and you know uh it was managed well in my career and then once i established myself as competitive it was like who cares yeah i mean that's a really good people are gonna ride the jockeys who win at a high percentage and that's a really good point to point out because you know like you said there's good jockeys there's bad jockeys but at the same time you need that momentum to get put on good horses you need the momentum to get good trainers to give you good horses so like you could be the best rider out there and if no one knows who you are and or you have a bad reputation and you're not put on good horses, you're going to have a hell of a lot harder time at winning races. Well, right, but, I mean, that's all part of being a jockey yeah. is, it's the politics. Is, is the politics and the personality and the professionalism to get yourself yeah. into those good places to make sure that you have those opportunities. And it also keeps you safe at the same time. You know what yeah. I mean? I like mean, I get... was very blessed to have some extremely good influences in my life to steer me all in the right direction with that. And yeah. just, just learning that in, like, a, a, you know, life skills aspect, you know, helped me implement that in my career. And so I, I think I know this, but the listeners might not. Like, what was your background with horses, and when did you start riding race meets? So uh, my background is, you know, riding since I could 
walker before then. My mother um, was an eventing trainer and coach. I grew up in Pony Club. Um, I did, you know, everything in Pony Club. I loved mounted games and, uh, you know, we did mostly eventing. Um, so that was my background. And then I got into pony racing initially through Pony Club with team chases. Which I'm so bummed we didn't have this when I was growing up because I would have kicked ass at right? pony races. Yeah. We just didn't have it. They, they had them, just not here. And they still have them, just not a lot here. Rosie, we can start this. Um, there is like a little colony of two and three-year-olds that now do the lead line trot race. I was actually in this same barn where we're sitting um, doing, uh, organizing the first lead line trot race at the um, High Hope Steeplechase last year. Um, and we I had, this, this could convince me to procreate. Okay, if I could have so, a little steeplechase baby. I don't know if you remember High Hope Steeplechase last uh, it, year. Oh, no. I drove the ambulance. It was miserable. Okay. <laughs> my, the bridge to that leads to my house, which we had to drive over to leave, it was underwater. 20 minutes after we drove over it was three feet underwater. Oh, my gosh. And I had a field of seven lead liners, including <laughs> Helen Pitts' daughter, uh, Riley. Um, Jamie Hernandez's daughter, Jocelyn, and her cousin, which I can't remember her name, Anna Ford's daughter, Morgan. <laughs> like, I'm going to kill all the kids. Um, the, and then my two boys. So that, that was seven. I, I think, I don't think I'm missing anything. So anyway, we're all, like, communicating, like, are you still going? Are you, like, we were all game as can be. Nobody wanted to miss it. Like, true steeplechasers. We, we had someone drive the kids. I mean, there, my son was, like, my youngest son was had just turned two. I think he was the youngest. Um, yeah. And so we had someone drive the kids up to the course. We were walking seven ponies in torrential downpour to do this race. The kids are absolutely freezing. And they just, but everybody, there was no tears. There was all happy. The race didn't rain during the race. And like, it was the coolest thing ever. Listen, I don't plan on procreating. We haven't heard from John yet. You have small children. Next year, I'll find the pony. You, you provide the children. No, thanks. <laughs> that's, that's all he's going to say. Come on! Does it have to be a pony? Like, can we put a small child on a large horse? Yes, but I prefer that you don't do that because I once almost got run over by a horse in a lead line race. They're very... <laughs> okay, so because this was a field of all first-timers, except for my kids who had done it before, it was pretty tame. When you go to Maryland, yeah, no, where they the pony videos. race... It's not. I was scared to death. And I pony raced, but I forgot. <laughs> I forgot how competitive pony racing is. Yeah. Like, you better get tied on. Yeah, so. it's like every bad other small child sport with, like, the parents screaming at the umpires yeah. and the kids getting too fact, competitive. As a matter of fact, in some of the lead line races organized by certain people, the parents are not allowed to lead the ponies. True pony club. They have assigned <laughs> pony leaders because the parents God. will jump off the line and not realize their kid's fallen off at the start. That I like, I like that this is, like, the detour we've taken on. We're, like, derby. This is the derby episode. We're talking racing. But let's, What's yeah. the difference? It's all the same. This is how you get started this, in racing. If you want your child to be a jockey, <laughs> find them a Shetland I actually don't bony. want my kids to be jockeys. Let's oh, just so make should, that we, clear. should we go down that yeah. tangent? No, I don't want do you, them to okay. be jockeys. So but do I you did. want them in the, in the industry at all? Because your husband is Joe Sharp. He's I a race trainer. I want them to do whatever they want to do. <laughs> but while they're small children, I want them to ride ponies and jump things. 
and yeah. run fast and do all sorts of fun things that you do not get that kind of life experience in any other anything. Yeah. But I and want I, them and, to grow up doing whatever the heck they want. And I, I think we can all agree that we see this a lot with jockeys that, yes, you know, you talk to some and they've grown up riding. Like Pat Day was saying at the Horse Industry Summit that he grew up rodeoing and then, you know, realized it was a bit more fun to stay on than to fall off. Um, but a lot of these jockeys didn't get the upbringing that you got. And that, in my mind, is so essential because you know how to stay balanced on a horse. You know how to make a horse's body bend, which is stuff that you can't always utilize when you're riding short. But still, like, you have it in your arsenal of, like, the dressage background and, you know, all of those little things. Do you think those helped you in your riding career? Absolutely. And, you know, we're all asked, a lot of the female jockeys are asked, why aren't there more successful jockeys? And Donna... Donna Barton made a made a good Donna Barton Brothers made a good point in saying like, um, you know, it's really hard for any American it's jockey. It's really hard for any American jockey because we don't have the same schools that they have yeah. in Puerto Rico and in South America, um, and so the way that people are learning to become jockeys is different. Yeah. So I feel like my upbringing in just horses and horsemanship helped me a great great deal. Yeah. I think that I can definitely agree with that. And, like, obviously we have the NT, or the National Thoroughbred Racing Academy, which is with BCTS. But, again, that's the college-age kid. So if you're just starting to ride when you're 18 yeah, years old, I mean, you're already tough. so far I don't back. Even, I would be scared to death. Oh, same. And same. then, like, you want to start with racehorses. That's, yeah. That's a challenge because yeah. you really have to, to ride racehorses really well. You have to really have confidence and know when you can and cannot trust them. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back to that point about the horsemanship because I think a lot of people look at jockeys and they think, you know, they're impressive athletes. You have to be strong and, you know, you have to know when to send them. You have to know something about horses, but not necessarily nuances of horsemanship. Talk a little bit about, like, other than being on the fastest horse and staying on and getting in the right position. I mean, what what – what does it require? Because you're only on there for a minute or a minute and a half, two minutes. So, I mean, what kind of horsemanship does it require? Um, I mean, when I think about that, because like you said, you're only on the horse for a minute, minute and a half. Or, well, let's let's go 15 minutes, okay? Yeah. You leave the paddock. That's great. <laughs> but, I mean, in a lot of instances, it's going to keep you safer. <laughs> um, just knowing how to react to all the different things that a horse can, you know, do unexpectedly during the races. But I think also, like, some of the trainers appreciated it because I would, I was, there was no point in my career where I stopped walking the backside and breezing horses, and I never, ever felt like I could let up on that commitment. Um, and so I breeze a lot of horses. I, I personally liked to ride horses on a weekly basis or whatever, breeze yeah. them up to the race, know how they're doing, know if this is different or if that is different, and um, just, like, paying attention to the details of things like that. Um, and that was just something that I was driven for because of my upbringing and because, you know, I liked the development of horses and this and that. And it was really, that actually was really part of what was lacking in the later years of my career that I missed was like working with horses, you know? I mean, at the end too, I mean, I was riding really quality horses and like a lot of times it's like you're walked to the track, you're ponied to the, you know, it's like, I just want to ride the horse, you know, like, and I mean, it's, you know, not saying that's the wrong thing that people are trying to protect their horses. They're very valuable and, you know, you, we all do the best that we can, but I, I was missing working with horses, but I think that was one of the aspects that really helped me develop relationships with trainers that, you know, they like to know, you know, know your feedback and have you come work the horses and 
see how they develop and um i think a lot of that kind of stuff goes into it where it's it's so much more than just the time you're on the horse. Yeah. And Rosie and I were kind of talking about this before John arrived because I got here earlier and was drinking a beer while she was getting her horse in his stall. But we were talking about how the people that are working the horses in the morning, whether it's the jockeys that are riding on a weekly basis or the exercise riders, are really like the unsung heroes. And they can give so much inference into what's going on with the horse and they can tell the trainers this horse doesn't feel right like it might be something so you know lowly detectable that we're not seeing an outward lameness but the person that's on its back every morning can say this horse feels stiff when I swap leads this horse feels off when I get into the deeper surface and so like you know we kind of just say oh they're there on the horse to exercise the horse but if you have that relationship with your rider it can help your training practice. Right. And so there much. are, you know, there are some extremely good exercise riders that will make the difference in yeah. a horse. And I came to appreciate all of that so much when I was working as my husband's assistant. Um, and I was pregnant for a lot of those times, a lot of the time that I was his <laughs> I was assistant. was pregnant so the last five years. I was, <laughs> that's what it feels like. Um, and I finally got over that stage where I feel like I've been pregnant for three years. No but, more. um, you know, I was, it was harder for me to be, you know, not riding because I couldn't feel all that. Um, it was also really hard for me to watch races because I had no idea how much horse they had. Yeah. Like when you're riding, you know exactly what you have. Um, but, you know, it's so beneficial. And like, you know, for example, when I did get back to riding um, and I was riding Gervin up to the Derby, like Joe loved being able to, I mean, well, first of all, yeah, he, gallops, he gallops all his himself. Um, I mean, he would gallop every single horse of his own if he could. He, I mean, he still. I think gets, that would be how I would do it. I would have a very hard time like right, translating and, it. And or even if he's getting on, you know, a horse, you know, he obviously can't get on all. He's got a hundred horses. He can't get on all of them all the time. But like he'll get on one and know that it's different or whatever, how it's doing. You know, he can translate that to his owners, and it just gives you such a a good peace of mind. But like going up to the derby and you know Gervin was even having issues with the foot and all that and it's like to have to be able to be on him to you know give that feedback or feel that yeah um on because that's like day to day you know so so to kind of touch base on that because that'll tie into one of the questions I really wanted to ask you you obviously retired from racing I didn't know you when you made the announcement I remember being like what no don't go get pregnant (laughs) like no keep the horses don't have the kids but two things the first part of the question is just, you know, what really went through your mind? I was actually talking to a couple of other horsemen about how I almost want an entire podcast on this topic because we as horse people almost tend to sacrifice our relationships and our families for our horses. And I was just really kind of in awe of the fact that you were like, no, I want a family and I'm going to stop riding, at least for the time being, to have this family. But then at the same time, when you go back to exercise riding a horse like Gervin, does it not just like kill you to not be the one on him in the race? So this is like, it's, (laughs) um, yeah, I, I retired because well, in my retirement, I had accomplished so much more than I had ever set out to do. Yeah. I mean, not really. When I was seven, I was like, I'm going to be the first and youngest person to win the Triple Crown. I never did that. But so there were still <laughs> a few. You, Mike there were still a few things <laughs> that you know could have that I could have accomplished. And I am, I think, knowing that, you know, I. I finished in the derby less than five lengths behind orb dude like, you won 71 million dollars <laughs> i mean that was all like good enough yeah. for me like i know i could have done it like i was really at the, the point in my career where i can go another 10 years i only rode for nine and a half years i mean that's, that's insane 
I could go for another 10 years and I could probably win the Derby, you know, win something else big, do something else amazing. I just, I had that, that momentum. I was like, I could just grit my teeth and like keep going or I can just say, I really, you know, this is what I want to do. What do I want to do? And it's so hard to give up that, um, that what could be. With, with my career, person, it's yeah. hard to give up, you know, what could be. But and and I even, you know, at the time we were thinking about getting pregnant, I was like, you know, I have Untappable. I was actually, <laughs> it's funny. I'm like, I'm like, Steve's gonna get mad at me if I get pregnant while I'm riding Untappable because <laughs> then he'll have to switch jockeys, and you know, we get along really well. And like, these are all the things that go through your mind. But I was this is like the general horseman's yeah, like subconscious. Exactly. And so I, I can't get pregnant before Rolex. I can't get pregnant right. before Derby. Yep. Or at least so, ride for the first few weeks. <laughs> so I came. I was like, "There's always going to be an untappable." Yep. And there's like, always going to be I mean, there's a derby. not. There's never going to be <laughs> yeah. another untappable. But there's always going to be something to Big keep horse. going for. Um, and I was like, "So if this is what I want to do right now, like just do it." Yeah. You know. And you know, Joe and I were like, "Let's just see what happens. Maybe it'll take a year. Maybe it'll take five years." And it ended up taking thirty days. You know, like <laughs> that's how it always happens. You know. So um, and it. I mean, I couldn't have. I didn't exactly like map it out and plan it that way but i found out i was pregnant on uh october 2nd so it was like perfect yeah breeders cup on the bridge Bam. Cup, be done peace out <laughs> yeah, I was like, i'm you done were, you were pregnant when you announced it i, I was like that. six or seven weeks pregnant you didn't actually drop the mic you didn't have a mic in your hand but you would have you would have dropped the mic <laughs> yeah. Yeah. they didn't the offer discount. it to me but no I, and i i i feel bad every time every time i see lafitte Pinkaya, i i just feel terrible about what i did to him because he had no idea it was coming. I had no oh, idea it was no. coming. The reason that I didn't, like, give him a heads up, like, hey, I'm about to drop a big bomb on you is because I knew that I could take it back before the words left my mouth. Like, am I really going to yeah. tell everybody right now? Because you were early in pregnancy, too, so. Right. Um, but I knew that I had to, you know, tell everyone why I was retiring. I didn't want to ride any longer. Yep. Um, and I had decided just earlier in that day, and I text my sister, like, I'd been contemplating, should I put something out in DRF? Should I do an interview with one of the publications that's here? given it to us. We would have released it. Should I, you know, what should I, should I wait until Monday? Should I blah, 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 blah. And I text my sister. I was like, I'm just going to wait until Monday and put it out on DRF. And then I went out for the race and we won and it was like, ah, I'm pregnant. You know? <laughs> so I, I was like, I, like, I can remember that. I, I, day, actually, though, I was like, ah. it makes me really uncomfortable to watch it. Yeah. Because it was like one of the most vulnerable moments of my whole Word life. Word vomit. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was one of the most vulnerable moments of my entire life. And it makes me like, feel was Joe weird. like beaming ear to ear though? He or had was he no like, idea that I was going to announce it. <laughs> he didn't, he was trick or treating with his daughter. <laughs> And back in Kentucky, and people started texting him. Congrats. He's like, oh, I guess she told everybody. <laughs> oh, poor dude. No, he doesn't. I mean, well, we agreed not to tell anybody, and he told, like, ten friends that I didn't tell, so he deserved it. But, like, do you miss it? I keep waiting for, like, we're Facebook okay, friends. So I keep waiting for, Gervin. like, yeah, just kidding. My kids are old enough. Okay, I'm out so of retirement. Getting back to Gervin. This is a funny story, too. Um, it was just as rewarding and cool to bring to be aboard Gervin on his way to the Derby as it is riding the Derby. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like okay, yeah, right, whatever. <laughs> like and told in, me to say in this. some <laughs> respect, it is yeah, right, whatever. But it was so I enjoyed it that much to be doing with Joe, and I enjoyed the fact that it was Joe's Derby. Yeah, like, that was awesome. I loved sitting back and watching him have 
his derby. Like, it was, I didn't have to do any of the interviews. Yeah. I didn't have to deal with any of that stuff. And I just was, like, so yeah. excited for him. Because he wasn't Rosie Napravnik's husband. He was exactly. Joe Sharp and trainer. he deserved that. Yeah. He really, really deserved it. I mean, he his career has been beyond phenomenal. Um, and, and especially up until that point, it was even newer than it is now. So um, I enjoyed that so much. That was what, I mean... I obviously spent a lot more time with Gervin than I did with Untappable or Shanghai Bobby or any of those, but he was just one of those horses that when you're in in his presence, you know, you feel different. Yeah. And I looked forward to riding him every day. He was actually, um, the last year, last year after the Derby, after he was laid off and came back, um, he, when we left fairgrounds, I was going to like hang up my tack and not gallop anymore. And he was the very last horse that I breezed. And that was my last ride on the track, and so it was like this, you know, and he retired after that, but so it was really cool. But um, I, do, I do, I wish I could just, like, fly in and ride the big races, but you can't do that. <laughs> Come on, Unfortunately, maybe. Yeah, Mike Smith pretty much does that. <laughs> and then there was, then there was a situation where Brian Hernandez was riding um, uh, McCracken and Gervin leading up to the Derby and picked Gervin, and there was this moment where someone sarcastically said, maybe Rosie should ride him, and... Brad Grady was like, maybe Georgie should ride him. And we were all, like, sarcastic and looking around <laughs> to see who was more serious than sarcastic. And I I would have done it. How much weight would you have had to I would have – not the weight issue, but <laughs> I would have done it if I thought there was any possibility I could be as sharp as my best yeah. day without having ridden races the whole time. Do you time. think you would have been? Like, do you think that you no could shot. have just thrown – No shot. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's why, like, I wouldn't have been less fit. Yeah. I wouldn't have been riding races for, you know – I think that's awesome to admit, though, to just say, like, no, like, I'm I'm not no, in my best well, shape, and I'm not the best rider right now. It's the derby. What if I got yeah. beat because I yeah. wasn't fit enough? And or, more so, what or if sharp your, enough your or husband's horse got beat right, because exactly, it's you? Exactly. So, <laughs> There's um, some marital no, strife. No, I mean, for the owner and, and for yeah. Joe, of course, I mean, it would have been, you know... There's no shot I could have had two fairy tale stories like that. So, and not just for some cute story to lead up to. No, no, no. If no, we're no. not doing this for the cute stories leading up to it, we're doing right. it for the best. No. It safest was it ride was a fun horse. thought for yeah. about a millisecond, and I think we all had fun with the thought for a millisecond, but it was never a, never a serious consideration. And um, you know, it was unfortunate he didn't run better in the Derby and didn't have a better trip. But yeah, do you have a, a favorite for this Derby? Because I, I I will fully admit I have nothing. No, but, like, literally, like, my little um, brother text messages me every year, and it's like, who are you betting this is on? Gonna and every year I've had a horse, and this year I'm like, Okay, Man. this is going to sound super biased because he's my father-in-law, but Brett Calhoun's horse, by my standards, is, like, a, I've, I've, a heart horse. I've No, I don't even – I've never even seen the horse in person. <laughs> but um, I really – I mean, I probably have, but I didn't know it was him. Uh, but I've seen videos of him breezing, and, good. like, I want him. <laughs> And I'll but never do you want have him, him as an adventure or yes. to ride in the Derby. <laughs> no, I want him as an adventure. But also, they don't like when we say that. Rosie. I know, I know, I know they don't. <laughs> and uh, don't tell Brett I said that. But um, <laughs> don't listen because I have actually gotten two really, really nice horses from Brett. Um, but uh, no, he's. I mean, watching him breeze is like he he's gallop. a freaking powerhouse. He just looks so good and effortless and fluid and just um i haven't you know i haven't actually put that much into the derby field this <laughs> like year i stopped my handicapping days when i was um, in the jocks room i don't pay that much attention if i have to but uh 
I I'm gonna I'm gonna go with him. Yeah. I mean, for the I, like, I literally haven't picked anyone, and I probably should while we're interviewing people for this podcast. You oh, have that's... a show with opinions, so you need. Yeah. To yeah. Well, this you're you're more the yeah says the man leading to the reason that we're here with Rosie at Land Rover, who knows everything about the horse she's riding at RRP this year. Yes. You should have opinions. I'm here for the fluff. Okay, well, on that note, it's probably a perfect place to stop. I really hope that we will touch base in the next couple of months because I want to talk to you about everything you do with retraining and rehoming and repurposing, all of these thoroughbreds. Obviously, you're here at Land Rover with a repurposed thoroughbred, so touching on that. But that's a to- that we could talk for like four yeah, hours. We could talk for hours. We'll do that, that one over a glass of wine and that's, one, that's my second book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember in the first one. That's yeah, but... chapter twenty-seven. Yeah. But uh, thank you so much for talking well, to thank us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a fun conversation. Cool. It's no secret the animal nutrition market is saturated with substandard products and unfounded claims. As horse owners, trying to choose the right supplement for the right horse can be maddening and ultimately a waste of time and money. Well, Equithrive has simplified this whole supplement song and dance for you with a lineup of products that are developed with care and backed by science. Products you can trust to safely support optimal health and wellness of your ponies and pups. Equithrive's proprietary resveratrol ingredient, resveracin, has been clinically proven to reduce lameness, inflammation and oxidative stress in horses, as well as support optimum metabolic function. Listeners of this podcast can get 10% off plus free shipping on their first order. Just head over to equithrive.com and use the promo code CARLY at checkout. And yes, you can blame my mother, that's C-A-R-L-E-I-G-H, for 10% off and free shipping. Stop wasting your time and money on unproven products. If you believe in products backed by scientific research and clinical trials, Equithrive is the name to remember. Do your critters a favor and visit equithrive.com today. This next interview is with a woman I have looked up to for a long time. Carrie Brogdon is the co-owner of Mockmer Hall, breeder of such big horses like Teppan and Vijack, as well as co-owner and founder in Select Sales, one of the leading consigners in North America. She is part breeder, part pinhooker, part bloodstock agent, part owner, and a hell of a lot of fierce advocate for our breed and everything it entails. She is also now on the board of both the Retired Racehorse Project and the National Thoroughbred Welfare Organization, and is a huge believer in the life cycle of the thoroughbred being a full circle. So I want to just welcome you. I'm actually really excited to get you. I actually have a funny story about how I met you, and I hope you don't take offense to it because I mean it in the highest compliment possible. Um, One of your partners at Select Sales, Amy Bunt, is a dear friend of mine, and this had to have been probably six years ago that she asked me to come work the sales for Select. And I had just left Hankel, was back in graduate school, needed money, and I was like, sure, of course I will. And I told somebody that I was going to go work for you at the sales, and they were like, oh, she's a tough SOB (laughs) to work for at the sales. Like, best of luck with you. And I was like, oh, God, what did I get myself into? Like, is this going to be a miserable experience? And that first day, I pulled a weanling out of the stall. I forget who it was. And I was showing, and I stood him up, and I looked over, and you were, like, giving me the signals for, like, move his hind end, move his front end, do this, do that. I don't remember this at all. And I remember sitting there and going, 
if this is the bitch part of the SOB, hell yeah. Like, I, th- this woman has put her entire, you know, life, blood, sweat, tears, income into raising these horses. So if she sees that he looks like he's over at the knee when I'm showing him and wants to tell me to move him, this is a woman I can get behind. Because this is how I work the sales. This is how I run my own consignment. And I remember just walking away and going, wow, like, I, it's good for her. Like, good for her for just being like, yeah, change how my horse is being shown. I'm paying you money. Do it. And ever since then, I every time that people are like, oh, my God, Carrie doesn't scare you. I'm like, no. She told me how to show a horse well. Like, Well, we, we started Select in 2009. And I think for the first, I mean, I've, I've also mellowed as I've gotten older, too. But I think for the first five or six years, I would hear that and be like, oh, oh, people think I'm so hard to work for and I can't believe this. And oh my gosh, I, 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 I don't mean to be a tyrant. And now I'm like, yeah. And now when I hear people say, oh, she's so hard for, to work for, I'm like, yeah, damn straight. Yeah. And my horses sell for a I'm ton like, of money. Yep. So deal. Here's the bar. You better, you better hit <laughs> yeah. it. But the, we have a, because we've selects been basically consignment now a pretty significant consignment now and we're in our 10th year the people our core staff i mean marco is our barn foreman yeah, he's awesome he's amazing and it, our core staff kind of just gets me and they get it yeah and it's so funny because we talk about in our consignment that the good showman will get away with literally murder and versus we'll have some new useless person come in and <laughs> meredith um it will always tell me that watching the cycle of somebody drop down the ladder <laughs> when they come in and you think that they're like really great help and then you yeah. realize it's not the case. She's like, they'll be like, go from showman to, oh, wait, no, no, you run cards. Oh, oh, no, you not. How about, can you rake <laughs> the you pick aisle? stalls while yeah. the horses can are showing? Can you the aisle and you're like, uh, no. And then it, you'll be knowing this person is completely useless. And by the end, they always kid me because they'll be like, at one o'clock it will be swamped. And everyone will be too busy and calling and yelling, and we'll have this conversation. We're like, I know it seems like we're really busy right now, but we just don't need you for the second half of the day. Thank you so much for coming. But but Meredith always kids me because it's like a sprint down to that. But the opposite is true. If you're a great showman and I don't have to, I mean, say anything or yeah. do anything, I mean, it's amazing that, oh, he came in three hours late. Well... <laughs> He showed the hell out He's of been the in the bathroom for 45 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> it yeah. is so true, though, and I think, you know, this is totally off topic from what I want to talk to you about today, but, I, like, I ran my own consignment at Hinkle, and you, it's so hard to hire people that you've never met, and that we, we have to do it, because Lord knows staff is tight, and so you end up with a ton of college-age kids, a ton of people you've never met, and... If, they, if you can't handle me saying, you know, that horse's white leg is not white enough, go rewash it, or that horse walks better when you do this, this, or this, like, you shouldn't be in the game. Cause well, like, I, think, I think what has really, really helped us is the, heart, the, the literal structure of select. So if I ha- am having a problem with somebody, instead of me going <laughs> directly at them, which I used to do, now I'll say it either to Steve or Marco yeah. or Cheke or Adam or well, some of the guys that really are have been there for years now and totally know me and and uh, can figure out exactly what I'm kind of looking for. I mean, and Marco is a very good 
good way of diffusing like he just understands what I'm looking for so yeah and we've had we've had I mean I grabbed my uh my daughter's riding instructor and uh her former riding instructor and we brought them all in to <laughs> show horses and I knew there were great show women or horse women and they picked up showing and yeah. like within an afternoon they're doing a great job and it's, under- it's really an atten- like paying attention to detail. It's yeah. like they- and knowing the horse yeah. and realizing and the, all those Shawner people, that's why it's so easy for them to convert to the thoroughbreds if they're not scared. Yep. You know? If they're not scared and they have good hands, mm-hmm. you're golden. Yeah. So speaking of Marcos, again, not really what I was planning on talking about today, but hell, it's, this podcast is a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. I just saw the pin-hooking oh, adventure yeah. that you guys went on with him, and I just think that's the coolest thing. I've heard of a couple of farms doing it, but can you like elaborate on what you did, why, and how it worked out? Well, I I think we get to well, – I've gotten to the point now where I've really – uh, me- mentoring has become part of my passion and then also giving people the opportunity that deserve that opportunity. I mean, the guys that work for me, I mean, they bust their butts. Yeah. I mean, they're there at 5 a.m. They're there all the way through. And so we came up with this idea. Mark and I have done a couple things in past together, but for whatever reason, this particular year, I said, let's buy a couple horses and, you know, we'll split them. And then you have we had Marco and Cheke and Adam who all work for us for several years now, and I know their dedication and level of horsemanship, which is astounding. And so a lot of times I think if we just put up, uh, you know, if people have the finances and then the faith, and that's what we did. We bought two really really nice frame fillies. One it was just bad luck the consigner brought her way too late to the ring, and no one I saw her for like twenty seconds and. And I remember we went down to the shoot, and I was like, oh, should I buy her, should I not? And uh, we bought her for $11,000, but the only reason we could buy her is because she didn't get a chance to show herself off in the back ring at all, and she was a New York bred. And so she brought 45000 which was a great return. Yeah. And then we had another filly, a Kyra Prince filly, uh, that had RNA'd at the OBS October yearling sale because she had had an abscess pop out of her foot. And instead of teeing off the abscess, it had been allowed to creep up. And so people were worried about her foot, but all it was is it just needed to grow out. <laughs> yeah. So she was purchased for $15,000. Beautiful filly, beautiful filly. And within three months, her foot had grown out. And she was always, I mean, the Cairo Prince filly, she was, I saw her prep several times this uh, spring, and she was always just special. So anyway, so the first day we had the, the Constitution filly, she brought 45000 Everyone was happy, but it wasn't the home, yeah. big time home run. <laughs> And then so the then when the Kyra Prince Philly came up, everyone was like, I, I was like, Cheke, Adam, Marco, come on, everyone. I just like, because I get that feeling that she's going to she sell some really interest, well. Yeah. yeah, that we'd had a lot of really good people calling, hey, what's she going to bring, da, 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 da. So all of us were up there. When she hit, I mean, I was like practically in tears <laughs> because we were so happy. So when she brought, she brought 130000 which was yeah. absolutely mind-blowing spectacular all of us were there and the, with the consigner julie davies who had her and it was a surreal experience but at the same point relative to i mean in the thoroughbred industry we tend to play with monopoly money yeah. i know that sounds strange no it's so true but i tell everyone that i said it's you know that 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 when we bought a filly for eleven thousand i mean eleven thousand can be yeah one you're like bit oh on that was horse. nothing yeah it can be one bit on a horse yeah you're like 
oh, this cheap $11,000 horse. And meanwhile, other people are like, $11,000. Yeah. And I'm super pumped when I sell one of my off-the-track thoroughbreds for $11,000. Yeah. I remember my first um, September sale when I went to Henkel, we had a really nice Malibu Moon Colt, which, side note, he's now eventing at Intermediate, so... He's doing other amazing things, but it was 2010, so it was right when it was really tanking. Just the market was tanking, and uh, we it was right when they had the live stream be started at Keeneland. So my mom was like, "I'm gonna watch all your yearlings online. This is so exciting. Where's the man in the dark glasses?" That's like the only person she recognizes is Bob Baffert. And so I told her his hip number and we took him up there. He had like 12 scopes. He had clean x-rays and he sold for like 160000 We were hoping for that 300000 400000 right, And so I get back to the barn and my mom calls me and she was like, that was so exciting. Yeah. $160,000. And I was like, ugh, like we're, we're actually kind of bummed mom. And my mom bitch slapped me through this through her cell phone she was like that is more money than your father and I paid for our first home and you will never get so like you know rose-colored glasses that's a lot of money and you guys should be happy and it's so hard to explain to people like okay but if your goal is three times the stud fee and his stud fee was 75,000 then 160,000 isn't great but every time that people like you or I say that in front of a normal person Totally. They're just like, you crazy, crazy bitch. Totally, totally. (laughs) Well, this, I mean, that, and it's all relative too. I mean, when you're doing, like with what we're doing, and we have, uh, we've actually, now we're going to do the partnership this year. I'm really excited because they're, because it's Yeah, because now you have money to put back into it too. Yeah, it's successful this year. And and we may, we're going to talk about it, possibly do four to six horses. And we've named the partnership, the Gen X partnership. That's awesome. And uh, so it's just, that is inspiring to me now, and and it's something I really want to do. And I'm hoping that with this new partnership we've done, that in 10 years from now, that they can potentially be sitting kind of in the seat where I am. Yeah. And that's where I don't. I want to. I want to propel people that are amazing workers and great horsewomen. And I mean, Susan Montaigne. Um, she's she awesome. She's awesome. She came up under me and. And, uh, and then of course I came kind of under Meg Levy and, uh, Meg continuously helps me on a regular basis. And I think it's a really important that it's, it's not, you know, at first it was, I dealt more with women and had Lindsay and, but now I'm realizing, well, I need to look at possibly helping more people that are amazing and dedicated to ourselves. Just like I'm going to talk to my mom about Mark Mahal buying a weanling to resell as a yearling, a proper weanling for the guys that, that are yeah. amazing and stay at Mark Mahal instead of just, I mean, we do, we'll do bonuses and stuff, but something more yeah. potential there. I love that idea. And I, like I said, I know that there's a couple of farms do it. There's not that many, but gosh, it, it gives you that personal, not only the taste of the victory, but it also gives you that reality check of how hard it is when it doesn't go well. I know that my fiance and I tried to pin hook two a couple of years ago and on so many levels, it was such a reality check because you, we always experience it from the seller's point of view mm-hmm. and you get so frustrated by the buyers. Like, why didn't you give us more money? Why does this x-ray issue frustrate you? You know, mm-hmm. so many things like that. And then we went to sell these two fillies and you know, we were really cocky. Like we were like, we're going to book one November and our budget's 40,000 and we're going to find a million horses. And then we just got outbid and outbid yeah. and outbid. And finally by like book five, we're in the back ring, just like, we're too tired to even go to the barns. Like now we understand why there's all these annoying people in the back ring. 
And we got to, and we made a little bit of money off of them, but you know, you're always thinking it's going to be that grand slam. Sure. And then one gets towed in. Sure. One gets long in the past. Sure. Or the sire gets pulled. Yeah, the sire See, that's got really why I pulled. love the yearling to two-year-old sales. Yeah. Because it's a performance-based yes. sale so that horses that aren't, aren't perfect that show that they're athletes are rewarded. And the reverse happens too. Now, I just had pieces of 21 horses sell at that OBS April sale. And we sold them from $9,000 to $1.3 million. And uh, I had pieces all in between. So... But but the interesting thing is there really weren't a lot of surprises, uh, you know, like the Kyra Prince filly we had with with in that in the partnership with the guys knew the whole time that she was going to be super yeah. speedy and she showed up that day. So it's one of those things where as a yearling she may have been brought X, but when she proved that she was a great mover, sound, beautiful stride, she vetted da da da, it was very rewarding. And that time that half an hour after that Philly sold where I, I it was just pure elation for me. I yeah. mean, it was just as I had just as much elation when that Philly sold and rewarded the three guys that are anchors in my company or our, excuse me, select <laughs> company. There's a lot of partners, a lot of partners, select, but it was Mark Mahal funding it. So it was, it was, so select wasn't actually tied in with it. Um, other than the fact that they all were, co- but I got as much joy from that as I did from owning 15% of the sales topper. Yeah. It was equal joy. And I, it just kind of keeps reverberating with me and I'm, and that's why I'm going to do it again and, mm-hmm. and do it better and bigger and, you know, so. So I have to ask you because I just read an article on the Pollock Report today that was actually about how it was a an opinion piece that was about how the demise of the thoroughbred is through sales. It's the fact that we raise them for sales and we bubble wrap them for sales. And I, I'm sure everybody that's read my blog knows that I disagree with that. I love the sales. I think the sales are amazing. I think that handling yearlings leading up to the sales benefits them in the long run. And there's definitely different farms that do it different ways. I'm pretty sure Mockmer Hall is one that you guys let horses be horses, correct? Like- oh, sure. Well, we were be- between two very like-minded farms. I mean, if you look uh, to our if you to our left is uh, Claiborne Farm and Sienna Farm. To our right is Stone Farm. Uh, we have Woodline Farm right across from us. We have Hiddenbrook. I mean, that whole corridor 627 is all a bunch of like-minded yeah. farms. And if you look after... Uh, I think Considine, they've got a horse in the Derby too, and they are renting the farm, the old Dapple farm that's Caddy Corner to us. So I think if you look at our whole, the 627 corridor, it is a bunch of like-minded, like-minded. And they still sell well. Of course. They they definitely run well. I personally think it's much much easier to buy a good horse than it is to breed a good horse. Yeah. Because if I'm looking at all the grade one produce, grade one winners we've had, all the grade two winners, whether it's you know, gift box or whoever, premium tap or whatever, all of them were in their top 30% of the physicals. Yep. All of them, the, the, the common denominator for all the graded stakes winners off our farm were that they were all top 30% of physicals and they were all uncomplicated. Yes, they had different x-rays and obviously it's well known that flat out had a defect in his front sesamoid and went up $6 million. And, you know, it's so it's so there's all kinds of different variables with the vetting. But the, the fact that, I mean, the, the horses, they don't have back problems. They eat, they take care of themselves, they sleep, they're not lunatics. I mean, there's a, there, so there is, 
I think some common ground yeah. and it's really hard to breed because uh, you're going to have a bell curve whenever you breed even if if you have dealing with 50 mares or 10 mares or whatever you're going to have a foal that has placentitis you're yep. going to have a foal that doesn't scope you're going to have a foal that's towing in you're going to have a foal that got a hawk infection I mean this yeah. whole gamut Hell, of what? one born without yeah. an eye or a colon. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah we have we have one this year born with a, a Malibu Moon Philly born with a cornea and her ulcer. I mean, a cornea, an, um, uh, what is it called? A uh, When she has like ulceration in no, the cornea? No, yeah, yeah, she has to have cataracts. She was born oh. with a cataract. So she's having surgery in two weeks, like cutting edge surgery. And that's the first one we've had not in 17 years. We've never... I've never run into that before. So yeah, you're always learning something yeah. new as you do this. Yeah. And like, I think the placenta, that's what people are like, oh, old mares can't have graded stakes winners. Well, such now, BS. so all these people were like, oh, no old mares, no old mares. And then all of a sudden the curling Philly wins, the violence Philly, boom, boom, left, right, bam, yeah. bam. All these old graded stakes, these graded stakes winners are all coming out of these old mares. And I thought to myself, that's funny because the racing gods, Whoever they are, when you say and you try to put a box around any rules, yep. and you try to make rules, they're going to be shattered. Yeah. The horses you know? will break the rules. Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, Warfront, he is a uh, turf sire, exclusively a turf sire. Okay. He has, bam, yeah. two horses in the turf. Empire that maker. That surprised me, too. <laughs> yeah. Empire maker definitely is not a turf sire. But yeah. The dirt. Yeah. yeah. Let's send him to Japan before we figure yeah. out what he actually should be producing. <laughs> so it's one of those things where we don't have a crystal ball, but I I don't, I mean, we've had so much success with the horses through our sales program, but I try to raise race horses first, mm-hmm. sales horses second, and the only time I tell everyone, and we are close, we're now a private farm, the only time I expect my horses to look spectacular is the day they ship yeah. to those sales grounds. And we do not prep. I mean, we will prep 60 to 75 days at the absolute yep. mo- most. And my, all my yearling colts are out together in big fields right now. And there's many different ways to the same ends. So I don't, I mean, I think. I just, uh, yeah, I guess my only like frustration with the whole talk, and I know that you've been pretty vocal on social media. And I just have to tell you that I I love your transparency on social media. I have always told people that get frustrated with my own transparency that being critical of something you love does not mean you don't love it. I always give the story of like my harshest critic growing up were my parents. Mm -hmm. Did they love me? Yes. Did they still sit me down and say, you're epically messing up? Mm -hmm. And if you want to go to college and get a good job, you need to start coming home at curfew? Yes. So like, I really don't think that you you can say that somebody doesn't love it if they're still saying that things need to change. And it's so multidimensional of what well, needs I to mean, change. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's, I keep saying it because, and I know people, people, it's a very polarized, I mean, I might, sometimes with the, with the Lasix and non-Lasix, I feel like it's like pro-life, pro-choice practice. Yeah. Like people are yeah. so. It's the thoroughbred version yeah, of like the March exactly, for Life rally. My <laughs> husband's Australian. I have been to Australia several times. I realize what racing can be. Yeah. I, it's not, you know, people are like, it's, I think it's fear. I think it's fear. I personally want our industry to boom. I love horses. I love horse racing. Every single thing I do, every single thing I fight for is, is because of my love for horse racing. And I you mean, have kids that you want to inherit all of this. Absolutely. And I'm just telling you that I have run a lot of horses and I can I think there's one that actually bled that actually had I mean Attain we ran him 
he didn't he didn't bleed. He didn't need Lasix. He just needed Lasix to compete. Yeah. As a as a performance enhancer against all the other horses he was running on, and as soon as we gave him Lasix, he wins by four and a half in Main Special Company at Keeneland, where he couldn't fit. But ultimately, I truly believe this in my heart of hearts regarding the race day drugs and Lasix that even though everyone is afraid of it, ultimately the horses will run more often. Yeah, the I horses agree. will be sounder. I mean, I have actually run and owned horses in Europe. Even though all these people are like, whoa, I'm like, have you paid bills? Yeah. Have you run the horses? We had a filly that needed her stifle injected. Okay, we had this big discussion. She got her stifle injected in Europe. We had to wait six weeks to run her. That's unheard of here in America. So it's one of those things where I do think it's fear of the unknown. I, I truly believe once we get rid of, phase it out, if that's possible, um, I, I think, believe it or not, in ten years, yeah. I actually think the trainers will. Be, when, I when you have a agree. level, tra- when you have a level playing field, I actually think that people will change their opinions. Yep. I mean, we watched our filly so perfect run. She ran like every 10, 12 days in Europe. Grade one filly came over here. There, there's no way she could have done that. They can't. They can't the, rebound they can't from with the, the diuretic aspect of it. And she was a two year old. So it's just one of those things where. I understand that people are afraid, but ultimately, I think it will it will actually be positive. Yeah, I truly believe that, and that's because I look at the rest of the world. I yeah. look at Teppin. Teppin ran on Lasix every single time she was here. She went over to Europe. She did not run on Lasix along with the rest of the field, and she won. <laughs> Shocker! So it's Still one of those fine. things where, where you know, people are like, "Oh, hey, how could you do it? The horse is going to bleed out." I saw Doctor Fingers post it with the horse blood all over his nose and stuff, <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, horses like that." And I'm not. It's four percent of the population. Well, yeah. Well, horses that do that anyway ain't gonna don't need to stop run it. Yeah. No, well, it's not going to stop it. The Lasix it. That, doesn't stop it, and no, they, they the don't need to be like running. that is not going to is not going to not bleed through yeah. Lasix. I mean, let's be honest. That was and that was what my entire blog was about. I actually wrote it in a rant. It might have been about that same post. Um, but like you said, it's almost like ignorance is bliss. And I I used to be the fiercest supporter of Lasix because I also think that, or I used to think that from like an animal welfare point of view, if it prevents bleeding, we should not you know have horses bleeding and in pain. And then. I just went down the rabbit hole mm-hmm. of actual research, not research on websites, but like peer reviewed publications right. online. And on so many levels, like you said, the performance enhancing part of it is because it's a diuretic and the weight loss. It's not because the horses are or aren't bleeding. So with that diuretic, horses are losing condition tremendously during races. And if they don't do that, they race more often. If they race more often, we fill more race cards. We have more, you know, more horses for people to handicap. It goes, it's so multidimensional. And then I just read something about how handicappers don't care about Lasix. And I just have to say BS. Like if you're a handicapper and you're watching works and not knowing if the horse is getting Lasix before a work versus during the actual race, like you want the level playing field for what you're gambling on as well. It's not, you know what I mean? It's not just from a horse point of view. It's from a gambling point of view. It's from the racetrack owner's point of view. Like, we all want what's best. It's so multidimensional. Well, and I th- and I do think that, I mean, it, we can't only po- point at the racetracks. Yeah. And uh, I do think that it has to, like you said, it has to start from the get-go. So, for example, James Keough and I were talking, and he said, 
Because I said, well, what about what happens if, if since we look at all this stuff for the racetrack, what if we look at the sales also? Yeah. What if you have policies, and I know there are policies in other countries where whereby no horse, no yearlings can be given any IV medication without it being announced, i.e. if you have a um, no more horse BBDs. colics or something. <laughs> yeah. Then you can say, well, this horse colic, it got a, a band meat or whatever. And he was like, what do you think? And James was asking me, what do you think that that would happen? He said, here we are, and we're at the sales ground, and we have bluestone everywhere. And everyone knows, when you walk a yearling, some of the most popular yearlings will work, walk 75, yeah, so to, show, 75 to 100 times a day, spinning on the same hawk over and over and over again, walking on this sharp bluestone. He's like, well, what do we do right now? Well, they get foot sore. We give them, you know, they give a little banamine. You get a little whatever. Um, and he's like, so that solves our problem because the drug is solving our problem. So let's fast forward. If the drugs are not allowed and you're dealing with foot sore horses, what are you going to do instead? And I said, ah, we're going to go in and meet with Keeneland and say, or Phasic Tipton and say, <laughs> you know, it's funny when my horses are at Saratoga where all that old stone is basically pulverized to d- yeah. dust, the horses at Saratoga never get foot sore. Never, yeah. ever, ever. I've never had a horse get foot sore at Saratoga. But you go to July in Keeneland and they have all this beautiful, fresh, new bluestone. It's yep. got those little shards on it. I was like, but we just reacted. So we would actually have to rely on the horsemanship and sit down yeah. with, with, you know, Jeffrey and with Boyd and say, you know, we really need a kinder surface if you think about the repetitive nature yeah. of what we're doing. And so just that kind of conversation. Yeah, and going from a horsemanship foot forward instead of masking therapeutic, a veterinary medicine foot forward and making those changes, which then leads me to the next thing. I'm going to guess I know your answer to this, but the idea of video endoscopy in the repository, are you pro or con? I there I do not as as it stands right now from the CBA I do not believe I know of a consigner that is against it. Good. I every I am, single I think consigner awesome. is for it. And all and, and some it's going to take some pushback but it basically it, it's going to come down to the consigners banding together and then the Keeneland and Phasic saying this is what policy is going to come forward. Yeah. Um I and Yes, no. I mean, there's, I mean, it's done in France. It's done in Australia. Yeah. I mean, if you, you can imagine how much damage is done when people, when you're trying to, not only that, a lot of these really popular horses, they know it's coming. Oh, and yeah. And you have to grab, oh, yeah. twitch them, grab a shoulder, grab an ear. I mean, if I videotaped it all, sometimes it would be shocking. I mean, there's occasionally horses that stand there like old. Yeah. Are fine. But most horses don't want to be that way. And then if you You think, also don't get the same scope on number well, 15 as you did on number 1. Of course one. you don't. <laughs> like, of course. And you would be the same thing with you. I mean, if you were if you were at a, in in the emergency room and you had to get a scope up your nose and they took it out, you would have some inflammation. Yeah. If they put a scope up your nose again and they took it out, you'd have more inflammation. Yeah. And of course, the and the irritation. And then you get to the point where the horse is, you know, they're go, you're going in the stall with them and they're already guarded and then you have you know, the horses can learn to displace because they're so terrified yeah, of being so through tense. that trauma. So um, I do, I, I cannot think of a single major consigner that I know that is not pro. It, it, that makes me so happy, but more so it's, it's kind of, it's relating to what I feel about going on to the race industry and Lasix and race day medications and all this stuff going on is like, oh my gosh, this is finally happening We've only been asking for this since video endoscopy 
came out, mm-hmm. you know? So like, I'm, I'm so happy it's happening. I hope we can get it into the sales in the next few years. I'm eternally time, optimistic like, that this will be in place by 2020. Good. I, uh, I, I'm feeling way more positive about that than I am <laughs> than LASIK. anything else. But I mean, LASIK is not, it's just a buzz thing. It's not just that though. You know, like you said, I'm one of the directors of Into and I, uh, these horses get off the vans. After they've yeah. had riders on their backs and you would come over and look at a van of 10 of them getting off from these Louisiana tracks and you'd be like, look at these ankles. Yep. Look at these knees. Look at these tendons. I mean, they, these haven't been, this is not a, oh, the horse got injured in the yep. race and it's coming here. These are chronic conditions where we have riders risking their lives on these horses that have been, you know, I mean, they've been propped up for sometimes for a dozen starts. Yeah. And that's the horse that I just got off the track. My Bodemeister Colt um, ran six times between the month of August and September. Mm-hmm. And I get him off the trailer from Utah and there's a golf ball sized bump on mm-hmm. his left front pastern. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, getting an x-ray of that one. And I get the x-ray done and he's got a distal P1 fracture that looks like it was a hairline fracture that was never healed. Mm-hmm. And then there's so much like arthritic We're changes on the, yeah. So I talked to the previous owner and I was like, Hey, like, did you know this? And he was like, no, you know, we injected his ankles and, did this and that and this. I'm 90% sure the horse got Osphos. And um, he was great. A little bit foot sore, but great. And mm. I was like, okay, but I'm just trying to get like a history of this injury. Like when did it happen? How old is it? And I was like, did he have the golf ball when you bought him in June? And he was like, oh yeah, yeah. He's always had that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, cool. So we fractured it a year ago. Mm-hmm. We masked it with joint injections and who knows what else. And then he runs six times on mm. a fairly large fracture of his P1. And it's just, and like you said, we're, it's not just the horses. Like you're risking the mm-hmm. life of the rider every time. And I don't know what all the, I don't know what the answer is. I, I really don't, I don't know, you know, because there's a lot of people that, that thrive on the, on the lower level claiming races. And I, I, and I realize that it's people's livelihood too. So I, I feel like. There's got to be some solutions. I feel, at least in my mind, and I said this a while ago, and I don't know how feasible it is, I really feel like we need to have a more stringent vet check. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't have to be flexions. That doesn't have to be an entire body radiograph, but just a jog. Mm-hmm. And actually have veterinarians that know what they're doing and not at the level, well, kind of at the level of an FEI event or show jump. Mm-hmm say no that horse is not jogging sound you don't mm-hmm. get to run it you well, know i mean obviously when i put uh, some stuff on uh, i mean i do get so much pushback from social media <laughs> which is fine and then i like i had a major buyer come up to me at the uh at the obs april sale and he was like i can't talk to you you're p- for PETA." and i'm like what? PETA. i'm like i'm not for PETA." i said i'm i i look at when i moved here it was fifty-two thousand full crop the yeah. full crop is down to 19,000 and change. That's what I'm looking at. And I'm like, instead of us keep shrinking, 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 how can we peel to what's the real world life is yeah. now? But you also, you grew up in the show world as mm-hmm. well. And I think that a lot of the very internal members of this industry are so secluded because they only talk to our friends with, go drinking with other members of the industry, and they just have blinkers on. Whereas if you have friends that do hunter jumpers or eventing and you hear from them of like, 
y'all, this looks really bad. You get that external point of view of like, no, I understand why this looks bad. Well, I do think what you have to look at too is our industry is kind of odd in the fact that basically a lot of it is controlled by HPPA and the vets who don't pay, who I pay the bills to the trainers and the vets. Yeah. The owners pay the bills. The, I, the people that actually, the people with the, with the gold are not making the rules. Yeah. So that is a very interesting situation that we are in now. Now, I will say for, for where we are now, I think that the people that pay the gold are now realizing that they don't make the rules and they're starting to push and there's a lot of pushback. Yeah. But I know that there, you know, every time that somebody comes up to me and, and tries to, I don't know, I, I've, I've gotten more resolvent. I mean, my, my own partners in select, there's a lot of, varying differences on on our opinion on yeah. the opinions of how we feel about race day uh, race day medication and stuff like that but ultimately people know that they can buy a good horse that's been raised either if it's been raised at Mock Mahal or if it's been raised at Goodman Farm or if it's been raised at Mulligan Farm they know that they're buying a horse that hasn't been hothouse that's been yeah. raised to be a runner and I would certainly hope that you know, my my opinion on race day Lasix and stuff like that may are, may completely di- differ than my partner Jay Goodwin's opinion. But at the same point, we both are love we love and are passionate about the industry. I mean, we're all all of us, and as in all the select partners, are so excited about the Derby, and we don't have a relation that came through us through the, at the, that's in the Derby. But we're just literally so excited just to be a part of racing's yeah. greatest day for three-year-olds. And that is, I mean, we were talking about this morning how exciting just watching the post position draw is. Yeah. So, I, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not, my personal view is on what I think can move our industry forward and into more of the mainstream is based in my real, in my belief of what I think can help us turn the Titanic around. So, I don't want to hit the iceberg and sink with it. <laughs> I don't and, but I feel like do. a lot of the status quo, I mean, like, iceberg, right ahead. <laughs> iceberg, right ahead. Why aren't the it's, lifeboats getting well, it's under? I've been saying this for 20 years, and I think finally, finally now, there is actual huge momentum for change. Yes. The fact that I think the video scoping, all of a sudden people are like, yes, yes, it's yeah. it's really sucks to hold down a horse and grab its ear and shove a scope up it 18 times. It's, yeah. Here's the video scopes. And it's interesting. My husband and I were talking about about it, and he said, "You know, there are, will be occasional horse that on the video scope has it ha, with a horse that has a dodgy throat, quote unquote, a dodgy sail throat." He's like, "You know, because every now and then you'll have a horse that has a two B scope that some yeah. vet will come in and it'll get all fired up and it'll peg up it pe- peg up and look normal, and and it passes the scope for a vet where it really qu- kind of shouldn't." And we've, I've been on that scenario of that side. I have definitely been where I'm like, oh, this vet says 2B, 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 oh, grade one. What? He said it's a grade one. Oh, hell. Excellent. Can we get a picture of yours? (laughs) So that may not happen as, that will obviously not happen nearly as much. Yeah. Uh, But the reverse is more. Grade, you know, where you have a horse go 18 times. Yeah. Grade one, grade one, grade one, grade one. Gra- oh, oh, he flung his head. Oh, I'm sorry. I hope, uh, hope everything's okay. Then all of a sudden the next scope. Yeah. Or, or more so What's the horse this is Nick? killing the this, vet. This big hematoma on the top of it. You know, I'm like, 
So I deal with that yeah. way more than the reverse. But. So so going back to your excitement for the Derby, like you said, you don't have Well, I bought the damn long range toddy and then <laughs> that actually is a funny story. Five thousand dollar profit. I should have known. I mean, she was buying bridled song. I now you have to like pry him out of my hand. But you sold her and she's now doing what? She's a hunter jumper? Yeah, she's hasn't been bred. The lady who owns her is super nice, super <laughs> amazing, careful. Of course, we called her back and offered some ridiculous profit. But she's done right. I mean, she, that's how, that's yeah, how she feels. Yeah, the horse is good and healthy the, and The mare happy. is in wonderful care. She owns the full brother. So, I mean, it's one of those things where, yes, do I wish I'd kept that ticket? <laughs> yes, of course I did. But, you know... It is what it is. It, yeah. But it, but it makes me cheer for him more because I'm like, oh, well, I temporarily for about 24 hours own the damn long range toddy. I think that this weekend's going to be really exciting. I, I'm hesitantly optimistic. I just hope all the horses are safe and we have like another beautiful portrayal of what racing mm-hmm. is. I love watching Derby Day because I love the stories. I think it's like the one time that we do a good job of marketing you know, mm-hmm. just how amazing these horses' stories are oh, from the they moment that amazing. they're conceived. I so. mean, every year, I, I, every year I, all I want to do is, yeah, it's funny, we breed all these freaking turf horses and sprinters, and, and I'm like, all I want to do as a breeder is win the derby, and it's been, or a pinhooker even so, and it's been so hard. I mean, the closest I've ever gotten is seventh. I've done the walkover four times, and that is a surreal god it's a surreal amazing experience yeah. i mean it, and and you just want to do it again and again but yeah no i do i agree and and no matter how different all of our opinions are i think the biggest the common denominator for all the thoroughbred people is passion yeah you know we can be passionate about lasix or unlasix or videoscoping <laughs> or whatever but ultimately, you have a lot of very, very passionate people that realize the highs are you. You have to you, you embrace have to the highs because yeah. here's going to come a low and it's going to yep. smack you in the face. And you know that's a crazy thing about what we do is you have to have the personality where you can really embrace the highs and understand how to deal with the lows because there are some brutal, shocking lows. Yep. I mean, I can think of probably ten over my lifetime of. I mean, you know, we had a human error falling last year where the, a fall died because of human error. I, I don't think I slept for three weeks properly for it. Probably. I say that to people all the time, too, because um, when when my fiancé was at Don Alberto, they bred a beautiful tappet colt that I became obsessed with, and he ended up being a really nice horse. His name was Reach the World. And I was posting about him on social media because mm-hmm. I love – giving my friends that have no connection with racing just that one same, horse same. they can I'm watch. Mm-hmm. And so I, he won his maiden special at Santa Anita by like three lengths, and he was going to run in the Santa Anita Derby. And I think he ran fourth in that, and then he broke down working mm-hmm. one morning. And it's just, it's like you said, like you're, you know, you're trying to love these horses. You, you get too attached. You're promoting the sport. And then when stuff like that happens, you're just like, oh, God, like, why did I even like mention him? Why yeah. did I get attached to him? Why did I follow my fiance to fold that mare? You know, so many little things. But you, that's what makes the highs so amazing. And and the highs so aren't hard. always. If you look at the numbers, what yeah. is it? One percent of the horse population are Grade One winners. Three percent Grade Two, Grade Three winners. I mean, that just tells Isn't you that nuts? how special it is. Yeah. And that's I. But I think that that's why there's a lot of really amazing and smart business people in it because. 
They can put a box around everything else. They can look at their corporations or look at this and say, okay, well, two plus two is four and four plus four is eight. Well, just because you have an A++ Nick, I mean, come on. It happens to see Nick. She's a champion. She just beat your A++ Nick. Yep. So it's one of those things where I think that that not being able to put a box around certain things. I mean, you can have the greatest mare and the greatest stallion, and if you have a great case of nocardioplacentitis, you are not going to get a runner. Yep. And that's just the realities of what we deal with. I mean, there, it, you can have all the formulas you want in the world, but in the end, there's all I, kinds of variables. I remember when we were talking about, like, the science behind everything, and I am a scientist, so I love science. But I remember, like, you know, we're always shooting for that perfect physical, that perfect pedigree. And um, Dr. Paul Thorpe once said to me, he was like, you want to know where you find crooked horses? And I was like, where? And he was like, the winter circle and the breeding shed. Mm-hmm. So, like, the some of the most crooked horses you'll ever see are the best grade one winners. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, and vice versa, you can breed the most oh, pristine, I remember, beautiful horses. I remember horse. I can say this now because he's dead X amount of years. <laughs> I remember when I went to see Street Cry and I looked at his hawks and his front end, I said to Craig, I was like, Oh my God, if we had bred this horse, I don't think I would even have tried to run him. <laughs> I mean, he was so crooked. And, but by God, hey, yeah. there he goes. And he became a very good stallion. And so we don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's all about how they land. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, all you have to do is go over the night of the stars. I mean, Teppan certainly wasn't perfect in her front end. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't, uh, she wasn't, uh, you know, shockingly anything, but she was a little offset in her knees and everything. Well, and then vice versa. How many times do we have a yearling at the sales where we're like, this is the most perfect physical Mm -hmm. I've ever seen in my entire life. They never even like break their maiden. (laughs) Well, that's, and that's the challenge of it all. I mean, all, everything can go, they have to have the will and the drive. Yeah. And that's why I think horses like, you know, where you stallions like City Zip and More Than Ready and Spice Town and they have that drive. They throw it down into mischief is the same. All of it. Every single one will give you, whether it's a 10 claimer or a grade one winner. I mean, I, I watched um, uh, Rushing Fall win the grade one at Keeneland, and I texted Mike and Mary Ryan, you know, who bought her as a yearling afterwards. I said, I was brought to tears when that filly won the grade one. I mean, she got past, well, almost got past. And she looked at another filly, and you could almost see in her eyes, like, oh, yeah, now we're going. <laughs> I was like, that determination. Yeah. And that, to me, comes from her sire and More Than Ready. And I'm a huge fan of More Than Ready. I've always been a huge fan. So that's certain things where it's an aspect where you you don't – how can you say this genetic link is here, but it's not there? We don't know until we put them in the gate. So yeah. we really can find out. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. So thanks, guys, for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed those talks with both Rosie Napravnik and Carrie Brogdon. And uh, make sure that you tune in in a couple of weeks for our next episode. We're excited to figure out what we're going to bring you.